I'm Jason Kelly, and this is the Practicing History Podcast. Practicing History is a podcast about the way we construct our pasts, not just how professionals do it, but how all of us every day tell stories, speak, think, and reflect historically. Through doing this, we're all historians. Today, I'm going to be sitting down with Dr. Cheryl Jimenez Fry, who's an assistant professor of history at University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. And today we're going to discuss a number of things, including monuments and historical memory in both the United States and Argentina, the nature of public history, and our work together on oral histories of COVID-19. So let's get started. This is Jason Kelly. I am here with Cheryl Jimenez Fry, who is Assistant Professor of Latin American and Latinx Studies at University of Wisconsin Eau Claire. Welcome, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for coming. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to ask you about what you do, but I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to brag a little bit about our <laughs> our alma mater, uh, yeah. University of California, Santa Barbara, or, or UCSB, because uh, we got to spend some uh, wonderful time in a wonderful graduate program on the beach, uh, as a matter of a fact. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, our times didn't overlap, but we've met since. So um, I was just maybe to get us started, Cheryl, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your, your training at UCSB and uh, a little bit about your research? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were so lucky, right, is that I think UCSB is, I think it's one of only two campuses in the U.S. that's right on a beach, or maybe it's the only one. Um, in graduate school, I, I have to confess, I'm sure you were the same as it's like, I didn't spend nearly enough time on that beach. <laughs> It's terrible. It's, you know, there were moments, maybe when, when we were kind of coming out of June gloom where you're like, oh, I have to go to the beach now. And some days I would take a walk along the bluffs, but yeah, you never go to the beach as much as you think you're going to. No. Now looking back on it, I think I didn't really appreciate that as much as I should. What a, what an amazing spot that was to have a campus. Um, and there were definitely, um, days when, you know, you looked out uh, or you looked out uh, at the ocean and there's a bunch of students out there surfing and it's like, okay, there's maybe attendance is going to be low today because the surf is probably <laughs> too good. Or something. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was, I mean, I, UCSB, the, there's so many good things we could say about it is that, you know, my time there started, um, I actually got my master's in Latin American studies and then, um, applied to the PhD program and stayed or was accepted for Latin American history. So I did my PhD primarily in Latin American history, but really got turned towards public history a couple years in is that uh, one faculty member, we were just talking about Randy Bergstrom, actually, I took a class with him and uh, he teaches public history there. And I just immediately felt so drawn to that aspect of the field is that um, my background is actually as a journalist. My undergraduate is in journalism and international studies. And I took a little bit of a break uh, for a few years after undergrad. And I worked for a couple small newspapers, uh, one in Northern California in a small town uh, called Susanville. Um, and so worked as a journalist for a while. And that's always kind of been where a lot of my chops were. And, and so uh, I ended up going back for history. Um, and realize that actually historians and journalists have a lot in common is that I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to ask you what, what brought you to history then? Oh, well, when I did my master's in Latin American studies, um, I gravitated towards history is that 
Latin American studies, you know, at UCSB and in a lot of other places, master's programs, they're interdisciplinary. So it's like you can go if you're, you know, you can work with an anthropologist or it depends on who, you know, what you're gravitated towards in terms of your research in Latin American studies. And I just naturally gravitated towards history um, and uh, sort of latched onto that and realized, oh, I, this is actually uh, quite interesting is I didn't get my bachelor's in history as it was in journalism and uh, international studies, which was also interdisciplinary. Um, and so I just naturally gravitated towards that way and then um, ended up getting my, my PhD in Latin American history. And once I was introduced to, um, I feel very lucky that I, you know, that I was at UCSB because it has such a great public history program. And so after taking one public history course, I thought, oh, this, this is for me too, is that this combines what I love about being a journalist is that you're taking complex ideas and condensing them into digestible bits for the public to understand. I've never been much of an, I mean, I'm an academic, but I always kind of fought that a little bit <laughs> is that I, you know, I don't like to write in a lot of jargon. I want my stuff to be read. Um, and so finding public history, I was, I thought, okay, this, this is where I belong is this is what I am. I'm a public historian. I'm always going to be a Latin American historian too. Um, but that's another part of my identity that it's like, I can't, I can't split the two. Uh, so, so I'm actually very fortunate that, um, you know, my job now is teaching both public history and Latin American history. So I, I get to do both of those things at, um, here in Eau Claire. Yeah, that's ideal. Now you were doing uh, some work with a, a friend we have in common, Monica Orozco, uh, who is the director of the archives at the Santa Barbara Mission. Uh, that was an internship, or was this something you did after you graduated? No, it was it was during the program, and it wasn't um, an internship. It was um, she needed a grant writer, and that's part of my background too. Is I've actually done a bunch of different jobs before I went back to graduate school. I was one of those students who was non-traditional and had done a bunch of things before going back, um, which I think sometimes is really good because then it makes you real focused once you get in there is that this is my goal. Um, and so I had grant writing experience in the past, uh, before I worked for a nonprofit, um, in Ventura, California, actually working as a grant writer. And so through the public history program, I was introduced to Monica, but she's also a UCSB alum. So, uh, she had mentioned, you know, that the, they really needed uh, funds for the archives. So I ended up working uh, there kind of off and on uh, a couple summers in a row. Yeah, the grant writing is such an important skill. And, and sometimes we get all the way through graduate school and we don't get a lot of opportunity to grant write. So yeah. you're fortunate you, you had those skills because uh, now I imagine they're helping you. Oh, yeah, that's because um, we're, we're going to talk about the oral histories project that we're both kind of working on this bigger project. But um, I started a sort of, uh, you know, we're, we're working with undocumented immigrants here to to document their stories. And we actually just I wrote a grant um, and got some funds for that project from the Albert LePage Center for History and the Public Interest at Villanova. So so those grants, those experiences absolutely come in handy. And that, um, you know, I. I used to teach writing for a while too at UCSB. Actually, that's not where, I mean, you remember what grad school was like. It's like you get funding where you're going to get it. <laughs> you, yeah. You, you, you follow the money uh, and you, and you do the job you need to do to get yourself through grad school for sure. Especially yeah. in Santa Barbara with the rents. Ooh, yeah. The cost of living is definitely high there. Um, and so, yeah, there were many semesters. I, I taught writing for the writing program there and, 
that was also a really good skill. You know, I mean, I, I've always had a writing background, you know, being a journalist and, and working as a grant writer before grad school, but then teaching students how to write in, you know, you can, I always tell students that you can write anything you want. You just have to, you have to know who your audience is, what your purpose is and what the context is that if you just, you know, that a poem looks different than an essay, than a newspaper article, than a magazine article, than uh, a grant, you, if, you know, you can write whatever you want if you if you get yourself into understanding audience context purpose. So yeah, grant writing stuff is definitely helping with, um, you know, working on some of the, the, the projects that I'm excited to, to be working on now. Can you talk a little bit about the research you did as a graduate student and how that translated or transformed as you uh, went into your current job? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I Well, I was always drawn to Argentina because actually as an undergraduate, I studied abroad in Buenos Aires and uh, just fell in love with the city. Um, I'm originally from a small town in rural Michigan, a town called Ascoda. Um, if, if you, they can't see on the podcast, but you, I can do my hand map. <laughs> it's a, you know, if you're from Michigan, everybody does the hand map, right? Where are you from? Um, but it's nor- Northern Lower Peninsula. And so I grew up in a real small town and then went to Northern Michigan University, which is a university in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in the UP. A pretty small university, but I got a really good education there for a small uh, university. And uh, the study abroad program there was big. Or, and um, I had a Spanish teacher who said, you know, you, you should think about studying abroad. And, and I chose Argentina, um, quite honestly, because it was so cold in the Upper Peninsula. And at, I thought, where is it warm? I mean, the, the seasons are flipped, right? And so winter up here is summer in Argentina. And so I said, I want to go there. It's so cool. <laughs> That <laughs> if there are any graduate students listening to this podcast, one thing to walk away with is choose research where you want to spend time. Uh, and yeah. uh, you know, I am uh, I love England, but sometimes I wish I had done Italy instead. <laughs> right? Yeah, and uh, and that is some good advice for grad students. And pick a topic that you want to research that you're going to love because it's going to be with you for a long time. For um, sure. So, so I, so I was always drawn to Argentina because I had gone there uh, for a study abroad as an undergrad and just, you know, being this, I, I grew up in rural Michigan. Uh, my mom is Mexican American, but my dad is from Michigan. And so I had kind of an interesting, um, like cultural experience uh, in terms of growing up in the Midwest with that background. And, and I was, so I was always curious about Latin America. I was like, you know, what have I missed about my background and, you know, how, and although I, I confess I wasn't as interested in Mexico. I, I think it was part of just, I mean, cause I have relatives there. And so it, it seemed more known to me. I was like, I want to go as far away as possible. Um, and so really fell in love with Argentina. And then when I back, went back to graduate school, knew that that's where I wanted to do my research. So um, that's where that kind of came from. And I was always interested in the idea of identity and how in terms of national identity in particular is how, how is that, coalesced and you know what goes into that and and I just sort of came across um I can't even remember how um I came I I thought of the idea of monuments is before everyone was talking about monuments right is that uh I actually in I think 2011 or 2012 it's hard for me to remember you know when you're a grad student you remember what it's like is you're trying to find a topic that someone hasn't done work on uh yeah what, but, but for which there's enough uh, material that you can do work on of course 
Right. And so there were several ideas that I threw out, I remember, and my advisor says, no, that sounds more like an anthropological study. And so I've always actually been my my interests have always been interdisciplinary, which is why public history to me made so much sense too. Is that public historians don't just do what historians right? They, we work, we do some anthropological stuff. There's like all sorts of different uh, interdisciplinary threads running through it. Um, and so when I first started looking for okay, what what should I focus on for my research? Um, there were a couple projects that my, my advisor said, ah, that sounds like an anthropo- anthropology study. <laughs> and so, uh, but I was always interested in the built environment too. So architecture, um, cityscapes, I think I really was enamored with the city of Buenos Aires in so many ways. Um, maybe because my initial experience there was this kid from rural Michigan that was just like, wow, this city is alive and amazing. And so it just really blew my mind when I was 20 years old and I I went there for the first time. So I think I I had this idea that I really wanted to do something with architecture and public spaces, something with the built environment and identity. Um, And then, you know, started to think about monuments and how it sort of, I drifted into this idea that um, thinking about how history is commemorated in public spaces and what does that mean and what effect does it have? Um, and who has a say, you know, because once I realized, okay, I definitely feel like a public historian, um, that sort of solidified my idea that, um, I need to be talking about something about history in the public sphere. And Mm -hmm. since I was interested in architecture and the built environment, uh, I kind of just ended up, thinking, you know, about monuments and commemoration. And um, I think particularly because in Buenos Aires, in the in the center of the city, there's a bunch of monuments. There's so many of them. Um, and it just, that just really caught my attention. And, and uh, you know, I remember one of my uh, committee members on my, on my dissertation committee said that it wasn't a good idea. As he said, I don't think there's anything there there. Um, and by the time I finished, you know, Confederate monuments, there's a bunch of, you know, this is a conversation that's like everywhere. And he said, I was so wrong about your dissertation is that, that there was definitely something there. So, um, you know, I, I wrote about, I ended up uh, researching in Buenos Aires about a particular, several different monuments in the center of the city, thinking about placement, uh, but also the public's use of them, iconography, the ideas that went into the monument itself but also how the people's understandings of those monuments change over time. Uh, the, a couple of the, the case studies at the center of my dissertation, you know, they, all of them were about building identity, about who Argentines are. Um, and though the ideas of who Argentines are changed though, based on, on politics. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was quite interesting to see, to basically trace the life of these monuments over time, over about 200 years from independence in Argentina to the present. So I did quite a big period, but also how, you know, in that period, the public had to sort of overtaken certain monuments and rewritten their, their meaning, uh, through protests, through, uh, different types of, uh, activities. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what I ended up doing, thinking about monuments, memory, identity uh, in Buenos Aires, uh, in Argentina. What, how is Argentine identity sort of built through the public spaces and commemorative spaces in particular? 
So as the discussions of monuments have really heated up in the United States over the last several years, uh, how has that intersected with your research? Maybe maybe a, a more direct question might be, how, from your experience in Argentina, how does that help you read what's happening on the ground here in the U.S.? Well, I think it's, um, it's really instructive uh, to see that this isn't just the U.S. Um, and in, you know, I'm currently teaching a, a intro public history class. And, uh, you know, we, of course, talked about monuments and the students were really excited to read international case studies to go, oh, all we hear about are Confederate monuments. And so understanding that this isn't just an issue that we're grappling with and it is, you know, this is something that's all over the globe, you know, understanding that, you know, our, our, our understandings of the past are not fixed and monuments are. So that's why they're problematic is that, of course, we as historians, you and I know, we revise our thoughts. We learn new things. We, we find new sources. We ask new questions. Um, no, our work is not static. Our understanding of the past is not static. And so that's why these are problematic. Um, no one would ever say revisionist biologist or revisionist chemist, right? Because they're expected to change their ideas um, and to revise what we think about the past and its implications in the present. Um, for some reason, historians are called revisionists when we do that, though. And it's like, well, that's kind of what we do, you know? And so understanding, you know, getting outside of the U.S. frame and, and seeing how other societies have dealt with similar conflicts uh, like there is one example that was uh, one of the central case studies in my dissertation. It was a monument of Christopher Columbus that was um, right in front of um, the government house, they, it, which is called the pink house, the Casa Rosada. We have a white house. They have a pink house. Um, and so there was a monument of Christopher Columbus that was put up, uh, was donated by the Italian immigrant community in the early 20th century. Um, and many of the listeners may know, and I'm sure you may know, is that Argentina had a huge immigration program at the, in the early 20th century. And the, there's a, a lot of Italians uh, immigrated to Argentina, Southern Italians. And so that's a strong part of Argentine identity is this Italian immigrant identity. Um, and so that monument was particularly problematic um, the placement of it was what was most problematic is that this is right next to the government house. Um, and so that monument was changed, actually. In 2015, the president of Argentina, she um, you know, went about it in a way that maybe wasn't the best. She didn't have any public debate. She just had it removed. Um, and so then there was controversy for a couple years over it. Um, actually, it was in 2013, excuse me, it was removed. And so there were big you know, fights about who owns the monument, who can take it. It was sort of in pieces on the ground for two years. And finally, it was trucked out and taken in 2015 and put in a different spot. So it was just reconstructed in a different spot. And then a monument of an indigenous woman named Juana Azardui uh, was put up in its place. Um, and Juana Azardui was uh, she helped win uh, independence for Argentina. She fought in the independence wars in the early 19th century, uh, but was largely forgotten. Um, and so, so that was, so looking at thinking about those case studies and thinking about how other countries have dealt with this is really instructive to thinking about our issues with Confederate monuments in the United States. Um, one thing I'll say is that um, our conflicts are so much more violent is that, you know, there were so many cases where you have mayors and governors ordering statues to be taken down in the middle of the night because they're afraid of violence. 
Um, and, you know, the Unite the Right rally where uh, a protester was killed, Heather Heyer, she was or a counter protester to the that white supremacist rally. Um, the, yeah, that wasn't something that I saw in Argentina is people were upset. Don't, don't think that they weren't is they definitely were. There were protests over the removal of the Columbus Monument. Um, there's another monument in, in, that was a, a central case study in my dissertation that is also quite controversial, but it's still there. It's still up. Um, and, you know, so these were, were heated conversations and they still are over some monuments. Uh, but I never worried that someone was going to hurt me attending these protests or anything like that, or that there was going to be um, an outburst of violence. Um, so so that is some, it, you know, give some perspective to what's, you know, the, the conversations in the United States. D- I want to probe that a little bit with you and and ask you, do you think there's something specific about the context of race and racism and uh, nationalism in the United States that that makes the response different on the ground here? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, looking at, I actually wrote an article a few years ago for the public historian and it was, or it was just a, uh, for a digital um, uh, issue. And it was, it was comparing Argentina with the United States. And um, it was one of those moments where things were exploding. I think it was after the Unite the Right rally in 2017, where everybody essentially, you know, in 2015, we had these, uh, we had these discussions after Charleston, um, after um, the white supremacists went into uh, the Mother Emanuel Church and killed nine black parishioners. And so the conversation of Confederate monuments and Confederate flags sort of came up at that moment. Not many monuments were removed. It still seemed too far for a lot of people as, okay, we can take the flag down, but that seems too permanent. Like that's the thing with monuments is that of course, our initial reaction is sort of like, oh, you can't take that down. Isn't that historic? And that's, um, that's what it, it was meant to be there forever. They're meant to be permanent. Uh, and so that's the sort of contradiction with our understandings of history and, and, you know, and that's where they become problematic. But so we had those conversations in 2015, nothing really happened too much. 2017 it exploded again after the Unite the Right rally. And I did write this article about thinking about Argentina and, uh, the U S in this, that really kind of plays into the question you're asking is that what is it that makes it so volatile here. Um, what is the difference? And from my point of view, it's that the United States, we have had a very, like a lot of countries, we have difficult pasts, we have painful pasts, but as a nation, we have been unwilling to confront them. Uh, and, you know, they're in Argentina, um, the, the story is quite different. I mean, they certainly have a painful past. Um, and the more recent past is that from 1976 to 1983, there was a very brutal military dictatorship that took hold in Argentina. Um, and a, about 30,000 people were, were killed um, during the regime under, under those uh, years of the dictatorship. And essentially they were you know, anybody that was considered a leftist, it was the, you know, the military dictatorship was far right wing. Um, they believed that, uh, any, they called them subversives, anyone that was a subversive, you know, it really was, it was really random though, at a certain point, you know, they first, they came, they took professors and union members and students and, 
Um, but then it became kind of random. It was like, if, if you knew someone that they believed was leftist, if they found your name in their address book, then you're also targeted. Um, and so they took people, tortured them. Uh, and so now those people, the 30,000 under the dictatorship are known as the desaparecidos that disappeared. Um, and so that national trauma was so horrific that like when it ended, when democracy returned in 83, um, a lot of politicians said, this was so awful, we need to forget it, is that let's bury it. Um, we need to move on in the name of national healing. Um, and, you know, these guys, the, the leaders of the dictatorship, the generals, um, they, on their way out, gave themselves immunity uh, and said, fine, we will relinquish power, but you can't do anything about what we did. Um, and so there was just such great anger about that. Um, and so this was a conversation in like a national conversation in Argentina in the years after the dictatorship is how do, what do we do with that painful past? And there was a lot of people that said, forget it, sweep it under the rug. Um, and there's, um, I remember, I can't remember who exactly said it, but it was a politician in the years after that said, essentially, we've put so much under the rug that there's a mountain under there now. Uh, and he said, we have to talk about this. We have to address this. There has to be justice. There has to be something, um, to recognize this horrible part of our recent past. And so they, um, uh, quite admirably did do that is they did truth commissions that, you know, they're, um, you know, just really a, a model of, of like, like Germany facing its, its path, its dark past with the Holocaust, you know? And so, there's a lot of parallels there is that, you know, in the streets of Buenos Aires, you walk around and there's lots of, uh, because I, because I love thinking about the built environment and how history is written into public spaces and what effect that has. Um, there are lots, so many places in the city that you can't forget the disappeared. You can't forget what happened. You know, there's like paving stones in the sidewalk, uh, where someone was taken from an apartment up there and it says the, their date of birth and that the, they're still missing yeah. or, um, and so there's, you know, there's a, a monument to the disappeared now that in many ways mirrors the, it's similar to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, a really stark moving example of um, something that art historian, uh, art historian by the name of Kirk Savage, he calls them therapeutic monuments. And I love that term. I think it's so perfect uh, because those types of monuments do something very different than the man on the pedestal. You know, it's not meant to commemorate. It's meant to help heal. It's meant to bring closure or try to reconcile or um, have a place for mourning for those uh, who lost people. Um, and so Argentina did really such an, I think, such an amazing job with confronting what was a really dark past. And and they won't, you can't forget it, is the, you know, nunca mas, never again. Like that refrain is like something you see on graffiti. You see it. Um, it's very much a part of in national identity. You know, that was something that actually I talk quite a bit about in my dissertation is thinking about how ideas about identity had evolved and that, you know, this, that those conversations of facing a dark past and, and surviving it and being better and to learning the lessons of the past became a part of national identity. Um, and we just don't have that in the United States. I think that's the big problem is that we have, a dark past that we have never been able as a nation to confront. And there are still people to this day that say, you know, racism doesn't exist. We live in a pro post-racial society. 
Um, and so like that, that metaphor, the, the, this guy in Argentina, the politician, and I can't remember his name, but he said, you know, we've, we've put so much under the rug. There's a mountain there now. Uh, that's us. It's it's quite interesting to me this this conversation. I've been teaching monuments and memory as part of my introduction to history course this semester, and uh, we've been talking about the way that uh, the United States has used monuments and memories, uh, or or I should say, um, used monuments to create memories and sustain and transform memories in the wake of the Civil War. And, you know, you're talking about this great moment of national trauma in the case of Argentina. Uh, and the response ultimately was some kind of truth and and uh, an approach uh, towards truth and, and justice. And in the United States, uh, the response uh, in the many decades uh, following uh, the Civil War was in fact to reframe the very conversation about the Civil War to actually create a mythological past uh, to uh, create a heroic narrative of uh, the Civil War, of course that that we we that the United States refers to as the lost cause narrative of the South, and that is uh, you're talking about things like uh, people pretending that there is no such thing as racism in American society. It seems to me that that's kind of one of the long consequences of this story that gets told, it feels like every generation has a version of this lost cause narrative that just keeps getting reproduced. Right. And it's, and that lost cause is it, it did what it was supposed to do. You know, it is so powerful is that, um, you know, the thing is, is that good stories die hard. You know, that was a good story. Like, sure. Um, what the lost cause did was take, um, the South's failure. I mean, they lost the Confederacy lost, but turned that into a triumph. It turned it into a victory. Um, rewrote the idea of what the Confederacy meant. Um, I mean, you and I know that as historians that like, I mean, the documents don't lie is you look at the documents, the declarations of secession. I mean, they're clear. Uh, slavery was at the center of it. You cannot divorce the idea of maintaining chattel slavery from the Confederacy. I mean, the idea was to create uh, a slaveholding republic. And, you know, and, and the idea, like, it, it sort of just, I, it always baffles me when, when people um, say, well, how far is this going to go? You're going to be taking down monuments of George Washington now. Now it's a, the slippery slope argument is, it's like, okay, well, Washington and Jefferson and yeah, th those guys are absolutely problematic. There are some issues there, right? Um, and, but, but those guys actually, they founded the country and they, they wrote these foundational documents that we still base, uh, you know, our government off of the, and the, so that, yes, they're problematic, but they, they founded the nation. The, the Confederacy was an insurgent revolution against that nation <laughs> is that these are two totally different things and we can't put them in the same box. History is complex. All of these figures are complex. That's what a lot of people don't understand is they get you know, we, this is where we run into problems with the man on the pedestal example is, you know, I'm of the opinion that those monuments shouldn't even exist anymore at all, because no matter who it is, you're going to find something that is not quite admirable. Um, and so the idea of putting someone on a pedestal and saying that's what those monuments, those classical monuments were intended to do, uh, very much a late 19th, early 20th century thing. Lots of countries were doing it, not just the United States. Argentina, for example, 
um, France, lots of Britain, lots of different countries were putting up all these monuments in that period. Um, and it was about creating identity. It was about saying, this is who, this is an example of patriotism, of virtue. It's literally on a pedestal. We will look up to this person and we will emulate those qualities. Like there was very much this idea in that moment that um, this understanding actually that public space is quite powerful, that um, this, there was very much this idea in the ether that in order, you know, cause you have new nations, a bunch of new nations forming and ideas about nationalism and identity. And so how do you coalesce identity? How do you get people to before who were, you know, they were, they saw themselves as totally different that they're no, they're Americans, they're French, they're Argentine, uh, they're Peruvian, they're Mexican, whatever. Um, here's an example of patriotism and virtue for, for us to live up to. And there was very much this idea that people needed to encounter those examples in their everyday lives to emulate those qualities. Um, and so, you know, it is quite stunning. I mean, there was a good understanding of the power of public space and we're still seeing that, right. Is that these messages matter. Um, I don't think that that can be argued anymore is that, like I said, when I first started my dissertation and I did have one advisor, so I don't think there's anything there because not a lot of people look at monuments and think, you know, it's sort of subconscious too, right? Is you may or may not be thinking to yourself, oh, who is that person? And let me find out their, everything about their history. You just know that that's someone that someone believed that we should honor, that there is something very subliminal about it. Um, and so I don't think it can be argued anymore that these don't matter course they matter. We're seeing that. Yeah. And, and yeah, and they matter over and over again. Right. So, and you know, what's really interesting about, um, the built environment and the, and kind of these monuments within the built environment is, as you said, they're always there, right. They, they represent this thing, but it, it kind of permeates the space so much so that you never think about it. So it feels at moments that it doesn't matter until it matters, right? So, yeah. um, you know, when when Maya Lin built the Vietnam War Memorial, which you rep uh, referenced before, you know, that was uh, both a, a critique of the the war, but at the same time, it was this 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 space for um, commemorating soldiers. It was a place of mourning together. It did all of these things in a way that I can't think of another monument had done uh, done before that. And of course, uh, the out, there was an immediate outcry against this monument. Oh, yeah. it wasn't chaotic um, enough. It wasn't. Yeah. Um, no, the Viet. I. I mean that example. I just love talking about the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. It is. You're right. There wasn't anything like it before. I mean that was a watershed moment in terms of understanding what a monument can do. Um, and because, you know, I the, there's a great book by John Bodner, a uh, public historian, um, that, at Indiana University. Uh, what's that? Oh, is I he? Didn't, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I love his, one of his books was, uh, you know, it was just, I, it blew my mind when I read it in graduate school and I still assign it. I love it. Um, but talking about American patriotism and memory in public spaces, and he talks about the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, but I mean, this is the, yeah, there was nothing like it before is the, you know, the, the, the problem of memorializing a war that was a failure that like Vietnam was horrific, right? Like it went on too long. We should not have been there. 
Um, we misunderstood what was happening in Vietnam, miscalculated. Um, there was no ticker tape parade for the, for the vets. Um, how do you, it was such a challenge that Maya Lin really just knocked it out of the park. I mean, she was 19 years old, Yale, um, undergrad, astounding. Um, that she came up with this idea of like the model before was the classical monument, the man on the horse. Um, that is so not appropriate for the, like the, the sentiments of like the veterans and like in public history, we always talk about stakeholders and like sharing authority. And so like the, the vets were so important. What do they want? They didn't want a celebratory monument at all. Um, and so, yeah, like you mentioned, the, the monument is unveiled and there is just a huge backlash. Um, some conservative politicians called it a black gash of shame um, and a grave site um, that this is not patriotic enough. Um, but but you know what? The vets said, this is what I wanted. Uh, this is what I, I need. We wanted a place for healing and reconciliation and remembrance um, uh, and, and it just, the, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial really just kind of brings about a new template with monuments is that monuments can do some, it changes what we understand that monuments can do. They can be therapeutic. Um, and so now there's the 9-11 Memorial. Um, Argentina also used a sort of idea like for a monument to the disappeared. It's very similar to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. It's very stark. Um, it's very much a place for reflection um, it's also a place for mourning for people who never, there is no grave site. Their family members were taken and there's no body that was ever found. So uh, th those monuments are are just so powerful. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about it about that moment when that transformation takes place because we've been talking uh, you've you've been explaining how these monuments help create the concept of the nation how they develop the notion of what the citizen is and all of a sudden we have uh, these new monuments that come along and they give us a new model of citizenship right this it's kind of this communal uh, w way of seeing citizenship in a way that these heroic models don't don't give us right so those kind of uh, the the men on horses model of of uh monuments what we have here is this this heroic uh great man on a horse that's supposed supposed to represent uh the 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 virtues of the society or sometimes you have the lone soldier standing with their gun right so to to be the everyman soldier um, and then you get this this other thing. I mean, uh, the myelin is the great example, right? You have you have all of the names, and and nobody uh, is is differentiated from anybody else. That um, I, I I see this this as a move from the heroic virtue of nineteenth century citizenship uh, to I use the word communal. That I, I don't know if that might be that maybe not the right word. Maybe a collective. Um, a space for, as you've said, collective reflection, um, and uh, it's it's just so powerful and interesting to see how uh, these monuments work and what the capacity is for thinking about the monuments we have and and what could potentially replace 
uh, what we conceive of as as monuments and and maybe the, their importance uh, when seen against these new models of monuments, maybe they don't seem so important or have as much to say uh, that that's useful any longer. Yeah, exactly. Is that maybe this isn't, I mean, I am of that opinion is that these aren't, uh, these are very much a late 19th, early 20th century thing. You know, we think about things in a different way. We do need to be more reflective. It isn't, um, you know, the, the reason that the Vietnam Veterans Memorial was so controversial when it came out is because it went against ideas about the nation. It's like you said, it's the you know, it wasn't holding up something like, look what we did right. And look, look about this valor and virtue. Um, it was, we did something wrong. This was, this was a tragedy. Um, and so many people died. I think it was 60,000, uh, soldiers. Um, but not just them, but PTSD after, I mean, it's just a national tragedy. Um, and, you know, what do we do with that? Um, and so the monument um, contradicted all of these ideas of of the nation and, and like exceptionalism. And, you know, we we admitted that we did something wrong. And, and I don't know if you've ever noticed or if you've been to the, or I'm sure you've probably been to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, there is, Maya Lin was forced to add the statues, the, the three, that was the compromise, is that um, conservative politicians uh, were upset. It was not patriotic enough. So she's added the statues. Um, and there is a quote, and it's I know it's in uh, John Bodnar's book. Uh, it always resonated with me that there was a member of Vietnam veteran who was on the planning committee who said, um, aesthetically the monument did not need the three statues but politically it did mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. they understood that it was a political compromise to make it palatable um the interesting thing is this monument is now seen as sacred is that it's um it it is such a solemn place for contemplation i don't think anybody would criticize that monument now but in that moment it was not patriotic and then bodnar in his book points out you know he puts it the way he explains it is it's a conflict between vernacular uh, and official memory is that vernacular is the people and what we want, what we, you know, we, we want to atone for these dark parts of the past and recognize them, but official memory won't allow that because it's contradictory to our, the, the official ideas of the nation of patriotism, of virtue, of exceptionalism. Um, and that's something like just just circle back to the original question is that Argentina was particularly good at is saying, no, we were, this was awful and we have to talk about it. And it, it doesn't make us less of a nation or uh, it actually makes us better. Um, and there's a lesson. We have to learn the lesson here. Never forget. Well, cause we can't let it happen again. And the problem is, is in the United States, it does keep happening again, right? Every time um, a black American is shot, uh, an unarmed black man is, is killed by police, we say the same thing. How does this keep happening? The same things. It's like we are in deja vu over and over and over again. Um, we're not, we're stuck. We're not looking at ourselves critically as a nation. And that is something that you know, those, those monuments, it's like, you know, the Confederate monuments that people want to defend them. Um, they just don't want to have an unvarnished critical look at who we are as a nation. I mean, part of it is a lost cause and it did what it was supposed to do. It clouded everything. It clouded the, 
you know, this, the idea of the civil war or what the real history of the civil war. And so we're still fighting those, those battles, you know, we, we do feel stuck as a nation in so many ways on, on, in terms of those memory struggles. So uh, I don't want to be too abrupt, uh, but we've we've been here for for quite some time talking, and I wanted us also to be talking about the the work that both of us are working on together, uh, the COVID nineteen oral history projects in relationship to the Journal of the Plague Year uh, yeah. uh, COVID archive. So maybe uh, you can tell us a little bit about the oral history work that you're doing up in uh, Wisconsin. Sure. Yeah. I was just thinking, uh, cause earlier that you said, I don't know, we could talk for 15 minutes. And I thought in my head, yeah, we could, we'll probably talk for like two hours. We, we, if we, if we could, you know, that's, there's, if we, yes, uh, if we were left to our devices, we would be here for quite some time. I'm yeah, sure. Whatever we can do it to our podcast. I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> so we should, yeah, we should get to the, the oral histories project. Cause that's, you know, that essentially, uh, I think you, I had heard about the project through you. I remember you you had ta- said a few things about it on social media, and I uh, I think you came into the project in the same way that I did. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean we were all thrown into COVID, right? Is that we had to? I had a group of public history students in the spring. They were working on a museum exhibit. Um, there was just no way. I tried to rework the project once we all went online. Um, and it just wasn't going to do justice to the original project that the students were, they had researched and were planning this exhibit. Um, and I basically, I, you know, I think I contacted you about the project and said, this seems really interesting to start doing oral histories. And that's when I went to my students and said, okay, you got two options. Let's do, we can continue our other project that you've been working so hard on in a digital, we can do a digital exhibit. It's going to be pretty limited. Um, or let's just completely shift to do oral histories. Um, and to their great credit, the students all said, let's drop this and let's do the oral histories. So we did, the, we had the same exact experience with our students when I went to my students and said, well, we can keep doing what we were doing, which is actually, uh, we were, it was, it was public history. It was digital public history. And we were doing our, uh, a project called the Frankenstein Atlas. Uh, and so doing lots of, uh, GIS work and social network analysis with Frankenstein, quite different than COVID-19 work. Yeah. And we, we threw that whole thing out and, and devoted our time to, oral histories. So tell me a little bit about uh, some of the findings that you, you've you had in the work that you've been doing, whether that relates to theory or method or even the analysis of the oral histories themselves. Well, I think, so yeah, the spring was, uh, I think it was easier to get oral histories then. I think COVID was new. People still wanted to talk about it. There's a little bit of COVID fatigue now. So I'm still doing the oral histories. And of course we still have participants, but um, you know, one, one thing I did notice was that, um, and I think we've talked about this before, is thinking about archival silences started to become something that was very much the forefront of my, my mind. And doing the oral histories this semester, is that something my students are much more attuned to, attentive to? Um, and of course, we know that is that archives reproduce power in, in particular ways, is that there are stories that historically are missing. And we know as historians, like, the feeling of looking for something in an archive and, and thinking, oh, it's just I'm never going to be here. I'm never going to get the perspective of a Native woman living in this time, or no one was asking um, a Black American what it was like, or an, or, you know, an Afro-Argentine. So, like those things are gold when you can find them. And so that was something that you know, doing this project, um, I have become so much more attuned to, and my students are, are working much 
harder this semester to be conscious, to be uh, intentional about who we're asking to interview. Um, Cause in the spring, you know, we, I think you and I and a couple other people that are working on the project too, is, you know, we realized at the end, a lot of these voices are pretty similar. They're coming from the same backgrounds um, in terms of race and class. Um, I, you know, a, a large group of my students uh, here in the Midwest are white. And so we're, they're asking, it's fine that they ask their friends um, or family to do an interview, but we also have black communities. We have a Latinx community here. We have a really big Hmong community actually. Um, and so we need those voices in the archives too. And so um, I've tried to be very intentional in this, the second round of interviews that we're doing now in that students are branching out much more. And, and I don't think that that was a, an intentional thing on the part of students in the spring. They weren't intentionally trying to just get certain perspectives. That's just where they gravitated. And we hadn't quite, we hadn't talked about archival silences. So that's definitely something that, um, in terms of teaching and, and our, what we're the material that we're trying to gather, we're trying to grab those voices that, that fall a lot, that fall through the cracks that, that quite frankly, a lot of people don't think about when they think about the rural Midwest is they're not thinking about communities of color, uh, but they're, they're certainly here. Um, so that's something that, um, you know, we're being more attuned to and that kind of, you know, dovetails into the the project with undocumented immigrants that, that I'm doing with with a colleague in, in Spanish. Can you tell uh, talk a little bit about that project on on, on doc, undocumented immigrants? Sure, sure. That kind of came out of um, I don't want to say my frustration, but maybe that's the right word. Is that in the spring, my students did a fantastic job. I mean, they did really great, especially dropping everything and and they really dove into this and. Um, worked on, you know, methods behind oral history and really trying to understand it and doing and being good interviewers. And they did a great job. But I, but I was a little frustrated at the end thinking, gosh, am I, I'm reproducing structures of power with the, with what we have archived is that I'm not being as attentive as I should be. Um, and so my uh, immediate thought was to undocumented workers on farms here is that in rural Wisconsin, um, you know, Wisconsin is known as the dairy state for a reason is dairy farms are the backbone of this state. Um, they are there's something like 43 billion in revenue a year comes in through uh, dairy farms. So Wisconsin cheese, milk, sour cream, all that stuff. I mean, it is part of identity, thinking about identity, right? In the, for the state is Wisconsin is, you know, the Packers cheese heads. It's like, it's part of our identity here in Wisconsin. So um, that got me thinking about what about, you know, I know the workers on these farms are majority of them are undocumented folks. Um, and so, um, that had, they have become the sort of silent part of, of the, this now or this state industry. Um, and, you know, in a state where, you know, Donald Trump won very narrowly in 2016, he won by a very small margin. Um, and in many of these rural areas, um, were, that tend to lean conservative. Um, that's not across the board, but um, sort of the idea of juggling or like balancing between the fact that the state's biggest industry relies on undocumented folks, but there's also this huge amount of rhetoric against immigrants. And and so my thought in the spring was, gosh, that would be so amazing if I could interview 
um, undocumented uh, farm workers. Um, some of them may be documented too, but most of them are Spanish speaking and uh, quite understandably are going to be wary of talking to me. <laughs> Is that, you know, we we know that with doing oral histories is that with when you're working with vulnerable and marginalized populations, of course, there's going to be a level of suspicion is what are you want to record me? You want to what are you going to do with this? Um, and so I was sort of grappling with this idea of I know these are voices that I think are so important um, to be documented, not only. um to get their experiences, but to understand the, you know, the, um, you know, COVID has exposed so much about um, systemic racism and access to care and um, uh, in this country is that so, you know, and getting their perspectives, they are particularly vulnerable, um, largely don't have health care. There are so many reasons that their stories are important. Um, but then I thought, how in the world am I going to get these? is that they don't know me. Um, I just moved here a year ago. Um, and trust was something that I thought, how am I going to get these stories? Um, and so I was speaking with a colleague of mine who teaches Spanish here. And she said, I would love to do this too. And this can be something that uh, is a learning experience for our students is if we can build this into our courses, you know, she can have Spanish students interviewing uh, the workers and my students, the public history students can be processing the interviews, adding the transcriptions or adding the translations on the files, uh, doing the curation for Journal of the Plague Year. Um, and we kind of went back and forth thinking, OK, again, we still have the issue of trust. Um, and then we realized we are so lucky in that I feel very thankful that UWEC has this amazing program, actually, that faculty in the nursing program started probably five, six years ago, I think maybe even longer than that, um, where um, nursing students, uh, it's an immigrant uh, worker clinical, uh, farm worker clinical, where nursing students um, who have some level of Spanish speaking uh, abilities, they, they want to work on their Spanish, but we, they also want to help these vulnerable populations. They go to these farms and they do their clinicals uh, with um, undocumented workers. Um, and so they provide them health screenings, vaccinations, things like that. Um, and so we ended up, to, we talked to a, a, a colleague who had started this this program and she was so excited about it um and that's kind of the end of it is that we just kind of put this together um it seemed like it came together really um organically that it was just something that um it just fit and that and i feel i feel grateful that that program was already set up and that her she has been working with these uh communities for several years so they trust her so we were it wasn't just me marching in and saying, I'm from the journal of the plague year. Can I interview you? You know? So, um, well that that's kind of the thing about public history and especially community engaged research is, is trust. Trust just doesn't drop from the sky. It's, it's something that's built out over years and years. And, you know, when we're talking about silences in the archives, um, you know, I think about this quite often. Uh, the institute that I direct, we've we've been doing community engaged research since we were founded in 2012, and so we have a lot of networks with individuals uh, across the city uh, that we can reach out to, but. When, uh, let's say, uh, faculty are, are, are thinking of maybe joining up with the Journal of the Plague Year and maybe thinking about integrating an oral history component into their classes, but maybe haven't done a lot of community-engaged research 
on their own and maybe they don't have those trust networks, um, but they still want to make sure that um, they don't reproduce power in the archive. Uh, you know, uh, they, we want to avoid the silence in the silences in the archive. What do you, what would you say to a faculty member who wanted to do that responsibly with their students? Well, I would say, um, I mean, there are several, like, we, we have to be very conscious that, um, that these interviewee, the, if we're talking particularly about COVID-19 oral histories, is that, that this is something beneficial for the interviewee too, is it's not, it can't just be for us is we want to diversify the archives because we think that's important to have diverse voices. Of course that's important. Um, but in my case in talking about undocumented folks in particular, they're so vulnerable um, they're putting a lot on the line to talk to me or to the, to the Spanish students who are interviewing them. Um, we need to make sure that this is as, um, comfortable for them and, and they don't feel tokenized. This isn't, um, that, that, there are ways for them to feel safe doing this, you know, that, so, so we're doing anonymous interviews. We're doing, some of them just want to do phone interviews and that's fine. Instead of, uh, having their face on zoom, some said zoom is fine, but we want it redacted. Um, and, and actually I appreciate that, you know, Jason, you put together, um, anonymous consent forms that, um, and a colleague in the program, Carmen Curry, she translated all of those into Spanish, which is great. We're kind of all working together and taking these pieces and using them on these different projects that um, these, particularly with vulnerable populations, like they, you know, we have to be conscious of the fact that it's not, the trust part is so important um, and they are putting themselves at risk uh, talking to us. So, um you know, talking to a, a colleague of mine on the, on this project, we grappled with this is that like, how can this also be used, um, to benefit them is that, yes, this is a way, I think it's also, it's very important for them to know that their story matters is that those who have already volunteered, we already have about, uh, 15 volunteers, which I'm so excited for. I'm so grateful. Um, but all of them, most of them said, I want to be anonymous. Most of them said, I want it embargoed for three to five years. Uh, and, and that's fine. We have to be okay with what they set the terms, you know, is that uh, it's understandable that they would be uh, reticent. Um, but we were also thinking about how can this also benefit them is that most of them were surprised. They were excited. You want to hear my story. I matter. That That's important that they know that. But also beyond that, is this something that we can use for policy? Like, can we influence policy down the line? Can this be something that we can help take away the barriers for these people, the things, the, the issues that they face on a daily basis? Um, and thinking about that is that this isn't just about, I'm going to get that story because I want the archive to be diverse, is that we got to think bigger than that, that and so we're already kind of my colleagues on the project, uh, Elena Casey in Spanish and Lisa Schiller. She's the um, head of the nursing uh, clinical immigrant farm worker program. We've already been talking about that is that we need to be conscious of, you know, this can be so powerful for us to be able to try to affect positive changes in policy in the future. Um, and I think that's a, that's a part of it too, right? In talking to vulnerable populations, they can't be tokenized or feel like we're just doing this just to do it. Um, uh, make it as comfortable for them as possible and, and try to make, you have to network and find connections in, in the community uh, for them to try to have that level of trust because, you know, they're, 
Sometimes there are archival silences because marginalized communities don't trust the archives. They don't trust officials, you know? So sometimes it's not that people aren't asking the questions. It's that, why would I give it to you? You know? Yeah. It's that long history of, uh, colonialism, uh, and the university, uh, and academia's, uh, deep participation in the colonial projects uh, around the globe, of course. So, um, yeah, the university does have to um, recognize its its historic place in, in actually creating a situation in which, you know, in many cases it shouldn't be trusted. Yeah, exactly. Is That's the thing is we have to recognize from the outset that um, we have to do the work to be trusted is that we shouldn't assume that we will be um, because we have the title and we have the project, which is a great, it's fantastic. I mean, Journal of the Plague Year is, um, I believe in the project so much, um, but why would they trust, you know, why would marginalized populations trust us? What are you going to do with this? Um, That's very understandable, that long history. So uh, thinking about uh, maybe, maybe, um, uh, taking a bird's eye view at uh, public history broadly, uh, as a practitioner, uh, you've probably seen some changes happening, and I'm imagining that COVID-19 is going to be a pivot point uh, to some extent, uh, affecting all of the work that we do uh, as as scholars. Uh, but I'm just wondering, are you seeing any large transformations or high level transformations happening in public history? Do you see uh, a future direction in public history, perhaps that looks a little different than what we've been doing for the for the past 50 years, let's say? Well, I think, I think there's a lot more attention to marginalized stories, to LGBTQ histories, to um, Latino stories. And I think in terms of the field, Yes, the, the, the field um, has been overwhelmingly white for too long, um, is that, you know, I, I mean, I, I knew that too, actually being someone who is Mexican American and getting into public history is that I was very conscious of that when I first started studying public history is that most public history texts and were stories about the United States or public public history practitioners were generally U.S. history uh, practitioners too. Uh, they were generally trained in U.S. history. And I, I think actually um, the, the job that I have now, which I'm so thankful to have, and it, it, you know, it's worked out in so many ways, is that I think when they first, I think they had expected a U.S. historian because most public historians are U.S. historians. And so I, I remember, you know, my, who are my colleagues on the department were so pleased. They were so excited. Oh my gosh, you can, you also study Latin America is that I think that's going to change is that there is a shift in that it's a, a global movement is that the, you know, thinking about public history on a global level, there are other places like Canada and the UK and Australia that have had strong public history uh, programs and training and presence in the field for several years. But Colombia is also rising in terms of public history. Brazil, um, several places in Latin America are, uh, you know, in terms of like rising public history uh, thinkers and work. And, uh, you know, that is really something that I, I think is such a fantastic change, well overdue, um, and is, is something different in the field that I, I think is, is you know, on the, the horizon. 
Fantastic. And then I have one more question for you. Um, uh, I tend to ask folks this question when when I bring somebody in for a talk at the uh, IUPUI Arts and Humanities Institute, I will often end our conversation uh, asking them, you know, do you have a suggestion of a book we should read or a person we should be following on social media or uh, just maybe a cultural object that uh, we should be paying attention to? Do you have do you have something you want to share with us and encourage us to engage with? Ooh, there's so many books. How do I choose one? Do you want a book on monuments? Um, sure. Um, you know, a book that I love is Kirk Savage's Monument War. I think Kirk Savage is just, I think he's just awesome. That's another one of those, you know, books that I read as a graduate student and thought, this is just really, there's really something here. Um, and so he was talking about monuments years ago. Um, and, you know, Monument Wars is an in-depth study of the capital of Washington, D.C. And so it is about the National Mall. Uh, he does talk about the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in there, but a lot of other monuments too. And, and it's just really fascinating. I think it's such a great long history of this one place, you know, because I do love cities and the built environment and thinking about public space and history. Um, I love the attention to just one city and thinking, and, it, and it's our capital, you know, it is, um, there's so much uh, to be said and, you know, it's, that's just a fantastic book. That will be my recommendation. Uh, Kirk Savage's Monument Wars. Well, Cheryl, as always, it's so wonderful to sit down with you and, and talk to you. And we always have such good stuff to talk about when we do get a chance to sit down. So uh, it's nice that we got to record this one. And uh, I'm pleased that you're letting us share it with uh, the folks who are listening to the podcast. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm uh, I'm honored to be on the podcast. And, you know, if we can't get together at NCPH for the annual UCSB alumni uh, public history dinner, this is this is going to have to do right because COVID time. So this is our, all right. Thanks so much, Jason. That's it for this edition of the Practicing History podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, it would be great if you could go on to iTunes and rate this podcast. And also, if you are interested, to go to my website at jasonmkelly.com and sign up for the newsletter, which has lots of other information that I send out on a semi-regular basis. If you want to follow me or contact me through social media, my social media is at jason underscore m underscore kelly. And finally, until next time, please stay well and take care of each other.